Welcome to the Sentinel of Liberty Halloween special. I'm Grant Richter, your host as always. And before we get started, I should answer the obvious question of what does Captain America have to do with Halloween? And the answer is nothing. So for this, the first of what I hope to be quarterly specials, I'm not going to be talking about Cap so much as I am one of my favorite Marvel villains. It's a character that actively gave me the creeps as a little kid, and I still think is a really fun villain, and that is Nightmare. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about four stories about Nightmare, his first appearance, two single issues of comics that featured Nightmare that I read when I was a kid that had an impression upon me, and then a story uh, from Mark Wade's run of Captain America, where Cap fights Nightmare, which is one of my favorite Captain America stories of all time. I should say that my good buddy Herman Lowe of the Long Box of Darkness podcast and the Into the Weird podcast uh, was originally slated to record this with me, but because of scheduling problems on my end, that unfortunately did not work out. But Herman was very instrumental in providing some material uh, that I no longer have access to that was vital to the recording of this special. So many, many thanks go out to Herman. And if you're not listening to either of his shows, you absolutely should go check those out. Our first story comes from Strange Tales number 110 from July of 1963. This is also the first appearance of Doctor Strange. The cover has absolutely nothing to do with Doctor Strange or Nightmare, so we're just going to skip it. The story is by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. It starts with a man who is never named waking up from terrible dreams of a figure that's haunting him. And the man says he's heard rumors of a guy named Doctor Strange who dabbles in black magic. And perhaps he can help this tormented soul. So this man goes to visit Doctor Strange. And Doctor Strange says, yes, I can help you with your dreams. By entering your dreams, he says, I will visit you later this evening. But in the meantime, Doctor Strange takes a moment to astral project to somewhere in a hidden temple in the remote vastness of Asia, I roll, where he is strange in his astral form, visits his master, the Ancient One. And the Ancient One says, should danger ever threaten, depend upon your magic amulet. So there's Chekhov's Eye of Agamotto. So later that night, Doctor Strange goes to the unnamed guy's house, and the guy goes to sleep, and Doctor Strange meditates on the floor, and he releases his astral self, and he goes into the guy's dream, and he sees this hooded, faceless figure wrapped in chains. Yeah, and the hooded, the hooded figure says, I am the symbol of evil, the evil that he has done. That is why I am chained so. If you do not believe me, ask Mr. Krang. Who is Mr. Krang, you say? Well, we'll find out. But before then, Doctor Strange is accosted by a green-clad figure with Robert Smith from The Cure Hair on a horse called Nightmare, His Doctor Strange's ancient foe. And the doc, uh, Nightmare says, You know the rules of sorcery, Doctor Strange. Those who enter a hostile dimension must be prepared to pay for it with their lives. And you can almost hear, ha 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 ha. But 
uh, back in the real world, the guy wakes up and he says, Dr. Strange mentioned Mr. Krang, so that's what this is all about. He must have heard it all. And so the guy knows that Dr. Strange knows all of the evil things that he's done, even though we, the reader, don't know any of them. And he pulls out a gun and he prepares to shoot Dr. Strange. And Nightmare is taunting Dr. Strange, pretty much saying, you will die and there's nothing you can do about it. But Dr. Strange says, there is one yet who can hear. Master, hear me. I need thee, Master. And so far away in the depths of Asia, uh, the Ancient One hears his call and remote controls the eye of Agamotto, which opens and emits a beam of light that freezes the nameless guy in his tracks. And at the same time, Nightmare is apparently distracted. And Doctor Strange jumps out of the dream and back into his own body and takes the guy's gun. And the guy says, uh, yes, I was a terrible person and I've ruined people in business. Uh, he says, I didn't suspect my dreams were caused by the many men I'd ruined in business. Krang was the last of them. I robbed him, but he couldn't prove it. Now I'll confess. And Doctor Strange says, it will be the only way you can ever sleep again. Dun, dun, dun. The end. I've covered this story previously on, I think we did this on the first uh, episode of Into the Weird when I was still on the show. This is a fun story. Doctor Strange is one of the few characters whose Silver Age adventures I like. I am not a fan in general of the Silver Age, but I think these uh, Lee and Ditko stories are a lot of fun. And this is a very proto version of Doctor Strange. He doesn't have the Cape of Elvitation yet. Um, I say the eye of uh, the, or, the the eye of Agamotto when talking about his amulet, but it's not called that here, even though it looks just like it. And in fact, he's specifically given the eye of Agamotto later in the Strange Tales run. But so this apparently isn't it. This is just a different amulet with lesser abilities that looks very similar to it. And in fact, Doctor Strange, I'm not convinced, was supposed to be Caucasian in this. Uh, when his first appearance, I think he's supposed to be Asian. That or Ditko just drew his eyes uh, always closed, maybe? I don't know. He, he looks very heavy-lidded in this. Um, so it, he almost looks like he's asleep. But I think that was Ditko trying to make him look Asian and being kind of uh, stereotypy about it, which isn't great. And again, that, that's something I mentioned in Into the Weird, too, that that's my big, uh, the drawback of these early Doctor Strange stories is that there is a lot of uh, racial stereotyping in this, but that, that could be applied to a lot of Silver Age stories across the board, too. Uh, Nightmare on this doesn't get a very big appearance. He's Like I said, he's just mostly a shadowy figure on horseback. You don't really see his features. You just kind of see the, the outline of his costume and his big shoulder pad spiky things. And you can see that it's kind of a cross-hatched green. And you can see that a little bit of his skin and see that his skin is, is chalk white. And you can see that his hair is gray and poofy. Um, but other than that, he is just a kind of generically menacing figure. But again, that is his first appearance. So let us move on. Next, we have Ghost Rider number 78 from March of 1983. This is written by J.M. DeMatteis and penciled by Bob Budiansky. Inks by Kevin Zuban, D-Z-U-B-A-N. 
lettered by Joe Rosen, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Tom DeFalco. The cover is awesome. It is Johnny Blaze in his human form hanging from the Ghost Rider logo as his motorcycle falls into the, the open mouth of the Ghost Rider with Nightmare kind of uh, climbing on the Ghost Rider logo with this uh, very taunting look. The book opens with Johnny Blaze in his human form, uh, unconscious and strapped to an operating table with a guy named Ronaldo and his medical assistants preparing to operate on Johnny and turn him into one of Ronaldo's army of freaks. And you can actually see a diagram in the background where it looks like uh, you can see where Johnny's feet have been amputated and he's sitting on his motorcycle and his legs are actually bonded to the front wheel of the motorcycle and there's some kind of cable that comes out of the back of his neck and plugs into the the engine of the bike and the you know the diagram isn't very graphic but you can really see the the horrible thing that this guy Ronaldo wants to do to Johnny and you see uh, Nightmare and Zarathos, the demon that possesses Johnny that turns him into Ghost Rider, looking down on Johnny's body from inside Nightmare's dimension. Nightmare's plan is to help Zarathos by torturing Johnny's mind until his psyche, I guess, collapses, and which would allow Zarathos to run completely free which benefits Nightmare because uh, Zarathos's presence on Earth as the Ghost Rider has done so much damage that people have frequent nightmares about him. So the more people are having nightmares, the more it benefits Nightmare himself. So within Johnny's dream, we see him riding his motorcycle through a very surreal Ditko-esque landscape, and he comes across uh, Mona Simpson, the lady who was growing up and she tells him in the dream how very disappointed she is in him that he made a promise never to ride a motorcycle again but he's broken that promise over and over and she turns away from him but before he can stop her this guy named Elliot shows up who was apparently Johnny's friend and Zarathos destroyed his burned his soul and destroyed his mind but the guy goes Wise up, oatmeal brains. This is a dream. Back in the real world, I don't even think I'll ever recover from what you did to, what you and your demon did to me. Um, so Johnny knows right away that this is a dream. But then, within the dream, Zarathos, as the Ghost Rider, zooms along on his flaming motorcycle and he grabs Mona and he rides off. So Johnny and Elliot they get on Johnny's bike and they head off after the Ghost Rider. Next, Johnny rides on to a graveyard where he sees his dead mother and his dead father. And he and his dad go for a motorcycle ride. And his dad tells him, you know, what a horrible disappointment he is before turning into the Ghost Rider. And in this, it either Zarathos is supposed to be gigantic or Mona is supposed to be very tiny because Zarathos rides off clutching Mona like a doll. So he and Elliot ride on, so Johnny and Elliot ride on, and then they come to Doctor Strange, Damon Hellstrom, and Doctor Druid playing Jax, and they tell Johnny what a coward he is. He has no spine, no backbone, and they all disappear. 
Uh, but then Z- Johnny finds himself in a hospital hospital room, standing over Crash Simpson, his surrogate father, who is dying of cancer. And Johnny says, "You know, you, you couldn't, you can't be dying of cancer. I made a deal to save you." And that's when Crash reminds Johnny that the deal backfired, and Crash died in a motorcycle wreck. And this is awesome. Crash goes from one panel to lying in the bed to flying across a row of demonic cars on a motorcycle in his hospital gown. And Johnny kneels over the body of the dying Crash, and then Crash turns into Ghost Rider as well. And he has Tiny Mona with his hand with him again, and they disappear in a pillar of flame. So Johnny gets on his motorcycle again, and he heads off, and then he finds his girlfriend, uh, Roxanne Simpson, who's the daughter of his surrogate mother and surrogate father, which is kind of gross. But uh, they're standing over this golden statue of Johnny and Roxanne kissing, and Roxanne says, you know, you're the man, you're not the Johnny I used to know, you've changed so much. And then an image of Johnny standing in a th- in a three-piece suit looking like a yuppie shows up and he goes oh that's not the real johnny blaze i'm a real man and roxanne runs over to the other johnny but then that johnny turns into mephisto and gets all giant and then, sw- and then eats mona uh like literally like drops her in his mouth uh so that's pretty creepy but then Johnny still realizes he's dreaming and he can control his dream. And so he makes Mephisto disappear. Uh, and he says, you know, all I have to do is wake up. But then Elliot says, hey, I wouldn't wake up if I was you. You won't be able to save Mona from Ghost Rider. And they show Zarathos burning Mona with this hellfire. And you see all these souls escaping Mona's body, which is everyone the Ghost Rider's ever tormented with his hellfighter. Hellfire. But then Johnny goes and kicks Ghost Rider in the back, and they fight and they fight and they fight. And Ghost Rider starts to burn Johnny with Hellfire, but then Elliot transforms into Nightmare. And Nightmare goes, Go now, Zarathos, for I have Johnny Blaze trapped. And he makes this like wall of flaming spikes that's supposed to keep Johnny trapped forever in the land of Nightmare. And Ghost Rider says, free? I'm finally free. And he races off on his motorcycle. And just as this Ronaldo guy begins, is about ready to operate on Johnny, Johnny's body turns into Zarathos. And he smashes his way out of the straps and he picks up all kinds of hospital equipment. And he throws it at the hospital assistants and he throws them around the room and he smashes them up real good. And then Ronaldo's army of freaks uh, rushes in and uh, Zarathos burns them with hellfire and uh, burns their souls and really just makes this awful mess. You know, again, it's not very graphic because this is 1983, but you know, he throws one through the roof of the building, throws two of them through the roof of a building, and then he picks up a staircase with like ten guys on it and throws it out the window. And he goes and he finds Ronaldo and he's getting ready to burn Ronaldo with hellfire. But then Johnny says, you know, I, I won't be responsible for what happens to the world if Zarathos is set free. So he he runs through the fire and he jumps on his motorcycle and he, he's racing through Nightmare's Dimension. And there are mindless ones there, and which is I thought was really interesting upon rereading this. And they start blasting, John, blasting at Johnny, but he dodges them and he jumps over these fingers of rock 
and he jumps through a jumps through a like some rings and then nightmare blasts the kind of psychedelic road that Johnny's on but Johnny jumps over the gap and he jumps through the mouth of a flaming skull which puts him back in his body and he's able to wrest control of his body away from Zarathos right before this Ronaldo guy can be burned and Johnny stands over Ronaldo's body body and he says it's over Ronaldo the demon's gone and Ronaldo says but he'll come back he'll know I know I know he'll come back and Johnny says not if I can help it I really, really like this story. Um, this issue, it's not particularly scary, but the, there's definitely some, they do a fantastic job of visually um, showing literal nightmare logic. You know, things transition from one thing to the other. Like, uh, like the scene where Ghost Rider is giant and he's racing along and he's holding um, Mona Simpson in his hands and it's it's a matter of perspective that you can't tell if Ghost Rider is giant or Mona is tiny. And then all these people in the dream keep just telling Johnny what a horrible disappointment he is um, and how, you know, what a failure he is and what a coward he is and, you know, the kind of things you, you would experience in a, in a bad dream and just how everyone keeps turning into Ghost Rider. And... Um, like just the surrealness of Doctor Strange and the Son of Satan and Doctor Druid sitting around playing jacks is kind of funny and it's weird and doesn't make any sense. And again, with Crash Simpson jumping over these cars and the cars are great because there's there's uh, one, two, three, four, four, there's like ten cars and you see one is yellow and it's got like these bug antennas and then one is kind of purple and it's kind of melty looking and then one is red and it's got this long tongue coming out of it and the one that crash actually lands on is green and it has spikes coming out the top so you know he's landing on these spikes which is awesome and then you have you know this uh idealized version of johnny blaze of everything that he thinks people expect him to be and then it transforms into mephisto and this guy elliot that keeps popping up over and over again because you know sometimes you know sometimes he's there he's like come on buddy we gotta go and they'll move on and they get to where they're going, but Elliot's not there, and Johnny doesn't think anything about it. But then Elliot pops back up. It's like, okay, we got to move on to the next thing. And of course, it's Nightmare himself. But you know, again, that's a very dream logic kind of thing where um, important elements pop in and pop out, and you don't notice. Um, and boy, the the I don't I have not read the story that took place before this. I don't know who this Ronaldo guy. Apparently, he works for someone called the Freak Master. I don't know what that's all about, but I'm pretty sure um, Herman did a story related to this on an episode of Long Box of Darkness a while back. You should listen to that. Um, but these freaks that, he, that they draw are amazing. Like you have one guy who literally has no face from the eyes down. It's like his, uh, his face goes straight from his eyes down to his chest, and you have like this stretched skin. Uh, you have one guy with tentacles for arms. You have one guy with kind of like a Cthulhu octopus face. One guy with Wolverine hair. Um, <laughs> and he's got, you can see like he's got talons on the end of his fingers. But uh, other than that, I'm not sure what's so freaky about him. Other than the fact he has Wolverine hair and talons. And you have um, one guy and he's got like these squiggly things hanging from the bottoms of his arms. They do a really good job on the freaks. And 
I really, really like this version of Ghost Rider. It's not my favorite version of Ghost Rider. I, I think I like Robbie Reyes best. But if you're only familiar with Ghost Rider from the 90s on, during the 80s, um, Johnny Blaze was possessed by this demon, demon named Zarathos. And they would it was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde thing. They would struggle for control of Johnny's body. And, you know, back in the 70s, he had some, you know, he would turn into Ghost Rider and he had control over his own body. But as time went on, Zarathos gained more and more uh, influence. And at this point, uh, when Zarathos would take control, he was just a cackling maniac, just wanting to destroy everything. And it's this really visceral feel. And I think what's kind of neat about it here is um, when Zarathos takes over Johnny's body, Johnny isn't wearing any gloves. So you have... Uh, you know, the skeleton head, the flaming skeleton head, but then you have this flaming skeleton hands coming out of the jumpsuit, which looks really neat. And just reminds you, this isn't just a guy, you know, like a human guy with a flaming head. This is a literal flaming skeleton filling out a jumpsuit. So it's just a really fun, surreal, you know, and, and unsettling if you're an eight-year-old story. And if, if you, it, it's not on Marvel Unlimited. I haven't found it on Comixology. But if you can dig it up somewhere, I highly recommend you check it out. Our last non-Captain America-related story is Incredible Hulk number 298 from August of 1984. The cover shows a gigantic shadow-enshrouded nightmare manipulating the Hulk like a puppet through a surreal dreamscape. The book opens with... Nightmare sitting on his throne in his dimension addressing an audience. And he pretty much goes through the routine of telling the audience who he is, what his dimension is all about, how he feeds off of and gains power from the nightmares of mortals. And we see a shot of some random people uh, temporarily trapped in his domain, uh, being tortured in these cages that in blood. And he goes on to explain that the one mortal that he's never been able to pull into his realm is Doctor Strange. And we see this big statue of Doctor Strange uh, in the background. It's got its arms folded over its chest and it's looking very intimidating and we see where one of Nightmare's little demonic minions tries to attack the statue, which represents uh, the barrier that Strange has placed to keep Nightmare from infecting his dreams. And you see a representation of the Eye of Agamotto open on the statue and blast the demon to bits. And Nightmare goes on to explain how he has often tormented Doctor Strange's associates in an attempt to get to Doctor Strange, including the Defenders, and among them including the Hulk, and particularly Bruce Banner. And at this time, uh, up until very, very recently, Bruce Banner had gained the ability to transform back and forth to the Hulk at will and maintain his own intellect, but he had increasingly terrifying dreams during that time that he because he feared reverting to his savage persona. And so Nightmare um, pressured those dreams, and it's alluded to that it was Nightmare's influence that caused 
uh, Banner to revert to the Savage Hulk persona that he is in this issue. Now, the rest of the of the issue is pretty standard. Um, we see Savage Hulk um, kind of wandering around. He Nightmare has implanted an impression on him that he must find Doctor Strange because Nightmare, if he can't torment Doctor Strange in his own dimension, he's going to try to destroy Doctor Strange on the physical world. So the Hulk stumbles across this pool party being thrown by a bunch of rich people. And at this point, the Hulk had been applauded as a hero. He's been given a presidential pardon. And the people at the party think the Hulk is a famous celebrity that's coming to visit them. And they are terribly mistaken, especially when one guy who's drunk uh, approaches the Hulk and tries to be his buddy. Hulk smashes. He completely destroys the pool party. He wanders off. We see some S.H.I.E.L.D. agents have been deployed to try to bring him in. Um, and the rest of the issue is Hulk smashing the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. And at the very end, we see where um, Nightmare is continuing to pressure his influence on the Hulk to drive him sub, uh, subliminally to go seek out Doctor Strange. And uh, the Hulk says, Magician will help Hulk, or Hulk will smash. I forgot to mention the credits on this one. This is written by Bill Mantlo, penciled by Sal Buscema, inked by Jerry Talak, T-A-L-A-O-C, lettered by Joe Rosen, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Carl Potts. Um, Now, like I said, the rest of the story, once we start following the Hulk himself, is pretty standard, but the opening is phenomenal. This was the story that really kicked in my creep-out factor about nightmare and it's it's kind of like i've i've mentioned in the past when i talked about barren blood that vampires uh were kind of representational of anxiety to me as a kid because it's the monster that a lot of people think about most when you think about monsters and monsters kind of represented the idea of being scared and of course as i got older you know that effect you know diminished and this came out when i was 10. I just turned 10 when this came out. And by then, you know, you, you, your rational brain kicks in a lot more than when you're when you're a little kid. But there's you know, one time that you can't control what's going on around you, and that's when you're dreaming. And, you know, a lot of kids are... The idea of having a nightmare is sometimes even scarier than a nightmare himself, the nightmare itself. And so, you know, that's kind of why, I guess, Freddy Krueger was such a popular... Um, slasher movie character back in the 80s is that you know it's you're it's a complete loss of control but what makes this so creepy for me is the way that Sal Buscema draws Nightmare Um, he is he managed to uh, put a sense of malevolence into Nightmare that I hadn't seen before and what makes this one particularly creepy is I said that Nightmare is speaking to an audience. The audience in this case is the reader. Now, I don't want to give the impression that Nightmare in this case is breaking the fourth uh, breaking the fourth wall, because breaking the fourth wall implies that a character is written in such a way that as to recognize that they're in a comic book and they are speaking to the reader of the comic book. That's not how this comes across. And when I was a kid, um, now when I read it, I'm like, okay. Nightmare is speaking to someone who is 
has been sucked into his nightmare dimension and the reader is the first person point of view of that random individual who nightmare is kind of talking to that has been brought to that brought to him but when i was a kid and you know again this is despite all rational thought it's just the idea of this was creepy to me is that nightmare is in fact talking to the reader from his dimension it's like the comic by opening the comic book you had opened a window to nightmare's dimension and he is talking from his dimension through the comic book to you the reader and it is a really really effective uh sequence it's the oh it's the seven opening pages of the book and again it, it's very surreal it's very ditko-esque with its surroundings and this i sal buscema's art is great all around his art especially in the 80s is great um it is just has such a i don't know, intense quality to it and you know everything about it is just masterful especially with this this inker whose name i can't pronounce jerry i want to say T- jerry talak um but they work really really well together the shading the 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 uh, the way they do the cross hatching on everything it's so good and the colors by Joe Rosen really give it really added a level of ominous ominousness to it that really really works out of all the nightmare stories this of the four this opening seven pages is probably my favorite the next I'm going to read is my favorite one of my favorite Captain America stories but this opening in Incredible Hulk is one of my favorite nightmare stories. Our final nightmare-related tale comes from Captain America, Volume 3, Number 9 through 12, September 1998 through December 1998. The creatives across the board on this one are Mark Wade Writer, Andy Kubert Penciler, Jesse Delperdang Inker, Chris Sotomayor Colorist, Todd Klein Letterer and Matt Idelson Editor. The story opens with America's most famous baseball player having gone insane and attacked fans with a baseball bat, injuring several people. And we see Sharon Carter, now back with S.H.I.E.L.D., working with the police to figure out exactly what's going on. We cut over to Steve Rogers in New York reading a newspaper article about Uh, General Chapman of the U.S. military who had gone on live television and blurted out military strategies that could have gotten American soldiers killed and now he is going to be court-martialed for it. As Steve walks in his civilian clothes from Avengers Mansion to where his old apartment is, he passes a construction site where a new, very modern-looking apartment building is going up the local grocer uh, laments how some rundown buildings in the neighborhood had been torn down to make way for it. And Steve enters his old apartment building where the Avengers have kept his apartment rented for him so he has a place to return to. But as he gets there, he notices the lock's been broken. He suspects an enemy is waiting in ambush, so he bursts in and finds a family, uh, a mother... 
a father and three children, at least three children who have been squatting his, in his apartment. The family is afraid that Steve's going to beat them up or turn them into the cops or something. And they start to run, but Steve slams the door and says, wait, 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 let me help you. And we learn that this is the Ramirez family who moved here from Puerto Rico. And uh, the husband, Luis, is a construction worker, but he got laid off. And then his wife, Alma, got very sick. And the bills stacked up, and they ended up losing their home. And they were homeless, and they came in to the building to get out of the rain, and they discovered the empty apartment, and they've been taking shelter there for a few weeks now. But Steve is going to have none of that. There's going to be nobody hurting for a place to stay around Steve Rogers. So he says, you know what? You stay here. I'll see what I can do to help because Steve is an awesome guy. Later that night, Sharon shows up at Steve's apartment, says, come on, we got to talk. They go into the back room. The, the Ramirez family has a good chuckle. Um, and Steve changes into his Captain America uniform and Sharon presents him with a new photon shield generator. And it's kind of like the one that he had in the Man Without a Country arc, uh, pre-Heroes Reborn, only this one has the same uh, color and pattern as his old shield, only it's made out of energy. And it can also store kinetic impact and release it, release it as like a blast. It's kind of like the shield that U.S. agent was using, using in Forceworks at the time. And if you don't know what Forceworks is, you're not missing out on anything. But Sharon says, come on, let's go parkouring. So they go parkouring through the city, and she says, you know those, those two incidents with the baseball player and the general? Well, I think they're connected. And what's more, there's a third one. There's a famous astronaut, and he was caught at the National uh, uh, Space and Science Museum cutting up the Apollo lander with a chainsaw. And the connection is they're all American heroes. Sharon tells Cap that there's something else that she thinks is connecting the three American heroes that have gone crazy, but she can't quite put her finger on it. Some kind of X factor, not that X factor, that's out there that she that she can't quite figure out exactly what's going on. And since Cap is the expert on the American dream, she thought he might be able to lend his perspective to it. And Cap tells her, yes, of course, I'll be happy to help you, but there's something I want to take care of first. So Cap and Sharon go to the construction site of that new big luxury apartment building that was going up in Steve's old neighborhood. And he talks to the foreman and says, look, I know a guy. He's out of work. He's homeless. He's got extensive construction experience. And he may be willing to work for uh, a housing opportunity in the building once it's done. Can you help me out? And the foreman says, well, sounds good to me, but I've got to check with the with the with the owner Mr. Rainier and Cap says he's already talked to Rainier and it should be good to go but Mr. Rainier just happens to be on site and so Cap walks up to him and says hey Mr. Rainier thanks for your help and then Mr. Rainier goes bonkers Rainier gets all up in Cap's face and says you want me to help freeloaders bums screw them I've got mine and I look out for only me that's the American way it's not my job to take care of undeserving leeches, and that's all there are in, these in this country these days. People don't deserve anything from me. They don't deserve any of my hard work. Maybe they want what I've built, but I won't let them have it. Watch! And then we hear rumble, 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 rumble. 
the partially constructed building starts to shake. And what we see where Rainier has hired the rhino to start demolishing his building. So Cap runs to go fight the rhino and Cap grabs a riveting gun and he fires a bunch of rivets at the rhino and they don't do a whole lot of good. Uh, but Cap says, I was just trying to get your attention. And he starts punching and kicking the rhino in his face, which is the only part of his body that isn't covered by his exoskeleton. But then the rhino charges the building and Cap gears up his new shield and Cap's like, well, hope this works. And sure enough, we get a massive spang, ang, 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 ang. And you know, if you know me from Twitter, you know I'm all about the shield sound effects. And the rhino goes flying. And, but the rhino takes one more charge and he brings the entire building down on top of them with a foom. This is a great first issue to open this arc. I'm normally not a big fan of Andy Kubert's. Um, sometimes I think his art looks a little flat, but this is one of the examples where an inker can really bring out the best of, an, of a penciler. And again, I'm not sure how to pronounce Jesse's last name. It's either Delperdang or Delperdong. Um, I'm just going to call him Jesse so that I don't say the wrong thing on purpose. Um, but he really fleshes out Kubert's uh, pencils and adds a more three-dimensional quality to it. Um, it also adds a little bit of a darker quality to it, which I think is appropriate for this story. Um, I do like how every time Steve is on panel, whether he's in his civvies or in his Captain America uniform, he's never just standing there. He's, you know, he's, he's some kind of pose um, that conveys motion. He's a very animate uh, Steve Rogers in this. Like, even a scene where he's letting himself into his apartment, just these four panels of him, and then he, he bursts in, and the way he's, like, standing over the family where he doesn't realize that they're just, you know, a homeless family looking for shelter. He looks very crouched and ready for uh, ready to spring into action kind of thing. And when Sharon shows up at Steve's apartment, she's looking into the skylight and there's this really cute scene where Steve is juggling apples for the family's kids. And, uh, and he's like, oh, look, here's a trick my friend Clint taught me, uh, referring to Hawkeye, of course. And he hands the little girl a banana, uh, uh, an apple. And he says, here you go, Rosa, have a banana. She says, that's not a banana, you're a banana head. No, you are, no, you are. And it's just cute. It's just the kind of thing you would do with like a four or five-year-old little kid. It's hilarious. Um, Sharon shows up. She looks gorgeous, of course. Um, I've always loved that artists go out of there, even though she's in a skin-tight costume and all that, she's never really overly sexualized, which is, you know, very appropriate. Um, there, um, Sharon and Steve's, uh, rooftop parkour scene is great. Again, he, uh, Kubert does an amazing art of just making Cap just super dynamic. He has, uh, Cap crouching a lot. Uh, it'll show him from, it's, uh, where the quote unquote camera angle is kind of down low looking up at Cap and they show him a lot crouching on surfaces, kind of almost, you know, Spider-Man-esque, but not that same sense of muscular fluidity that Spider-Man has, a more um, taut, muscled kind of pose. It looks really, really good. Um, I really like the scene with the real estate developer losing his mind 
in going off on a, a rant about the poor um, because, you know, a New York-based real estate developer who doesn't think very much of anyone who's not rich is, you know, kind of appropriate right now. Uh, we have the Rhino. I, li- I like it when heroes fight other heroes' villains. Not in an Acts of Vengeance kind of way where it's like, oh, we're going to make everybody do this across the board. But just every once in a while where, you know, like a Spider-Man bad guy shows up in Captain America or an X-Men villain shows up in the Avengers or whatever. I think that's just a fun little thing. The Rhino looks really cool. He looks really menacing. Um, the scene where Cap uses the rivet gun on the Rhino... I don't like, I don't want Captain America using a gun gun, you know, very often. And I know this isn't a real gun. This is a construction tool. And it's, but it's, this is the 90s still where gun is shortcut for badass. But I have to admit the panel of Cap firing the rivet gun at the Rhino looks really, really cool. And again, a lot of it has to do with the posing. Um... It's just the way Cap has his back kind of arched and his shoulder, his chin tucked into his shoulder. The, and his hand is really in the foreground and his, his other hand is clenched into a fist. It just looks really nice. The gun's going chock, 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 chock. Um, but yeah, this is great. It's just full of good, great sound effects with the building crashing around them. It's like the sound effects almost have a physical presence. And I really, you know, I'm not, of course, I prefer the traditional shield, but this photon shield is really, really cool. So that's the first issue of the arc. Let's move on to the second one. Issue 10 opens with Cap and Sharon and one of the construction workers buried under just a bunch of rubble. And Cap is holding up the rubble with his shield. And... There's a couple panels while that's going on um, where you see Cap straining to hold up the rubble. And the narration says, Even Captain America's new momentum-absorbing shield can only take so much of the weight above, collapsed around them by the brute strength of a rampaging behemoth. The rest of it is held back solely by the force of the mightiest will on the planet, and that will is fading. Fading because there's a subtle darkness gnawing at it, that he's never known before, a deep longing to surrender. And you see Cap's eyes turn from blue to green, surrounded by black. But then Sharon grabs up another construction gun of some kind, blasts a hole in the floor, and Cap and Sharon and the construction worker tumble into the sub-basement of the building, and they get out of the way before the rubble collapses on them, and they're in pitch dark, and someone lights a match, and Cap says, Thanks for the save. And that's when we get a close-up of the rhino's face lit by the match flame. It says, No problem. So Cap and the rhino fight some more while Sharon gets the construction worker to safety, and Cap is using his agility and his acrobatic skills to wear the rhino out, and then eventually knocks him out. And I'll double back around to that in just a minute. So Cap and Sharon, they get out of the out of the wreckage, and they go back to Steve's apartment where he changes back into his civvies. He checks on their Maris family. Steve and Sharon go for a walk, and Steve says he's going to check in on this congressman that he says, he says, I owe him a favor. I'm not sure what that's about. 
And Sharon says, I thought Captain America didn't get involved in politics. And Steve's eyes turn green again, and he gets all snarly, and he says, why bother? Find me a politician alive in this stinking country of ours who isn't a liar and a thief. He's like, oh, whoa, crap, what was that about? And he's like, I don't know, I don't feel myself. And But then he says, ah, I've got a hunch, follow me. And they run off. We get a quick interlude of Kang showing up and helping the Red Skull's shadow on Skull Island or wherever they are. And then we jump over to Avengers Mansion and we see where things are getting exponentially worse with people uh, having going uh, violently insane. Uh, we see in Cincinnati a judge shot a parking violation defendant uh, while he was on the stand. In Miami, a book burning was set in motion by a prize-winning author, Nobel Prize-winning author. And in Los Angeles, an inner-city teen accepting a national education honor on TV uh, attempts to slam a syringe full of heroin into her own chest. So people are uh, people are going insane very quickly, and they're all people who have. Uh, Cap says, there's a common denominator. Everyone who's fallen victim to this madness is someone who's championed or achieved the American dream. And Sharon, of course, is very uh, very skeptical. She does not believe in the American dream. She's very cynical for what she's had to do to survive during her time deep, deep, deep undercover in S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, and that's when Jarvis runs in and says... Uh, there's a traitorous madman is attempting to, to deliver an experimental fighter jet to a foreign power, and that madman is the U.S. agent. So we jump over to the military base in upstate New York, where the U.S. agent has taken a hostage, and he's planning on delivering an experimental fighter plane to a hostile power in the Middle East, it sounds like, by the, the made-up name of the country, because he wants... The foreign power to clone the jet to make more copies and start a massive war because he thinks that no one respects the American military anymore. Hmm. Uh, so Cap shows up and they fight and they fight and they fight. But U.S. agent seals himself in the cockpit and he takes off. But Cap grabs onto the wing of the plane and he manages to uh, force the wing flap up to make it crash into the ocean before it can really take off. So we go back to S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters and U.S. agent and General Chapman that we talked about last issue are in this kind of coma-like state well, with their eyes wide open and their eyes are solid green. There are no pupils, no irises, no whites, just green. And Dum Dum Dugan says, uh, we brought a lot of these victims here for testing and it seems that despite the fact that their eyes are open and they're talking and all, they're fast asleep. Cap says, they're sleepwalking? more complicated. I'm told their EKGs, records of their brain patterns, are identical on a second-to-second -second basis, like they're, have, like they're sharing a common experience being held captive by some weird nightmare. So Cap says, well, hook me up to this machine that will link my brain to the energy signature that's linking the brains of all the sleepwalkers, because comic book science and he says, all right, put me under and bring me out in 60 seconds. And he falls asleep and he wakes. And when he, his consciousness emerges, he's in a dreamscape and he sees a guy uh, who's skin and bones, but he's surrounded by cash and jewels and he's starving to death, but all he wants is money. 
and then he sees uh, two little kids dressed up in army fatigues, like shooting real assault rifles at each other. And uh, and uh, so like these kids are playing army with real weapons. And Cap comes up and goes, "Give me those!" And the little kids say, "Hey, we know our rights. We can bear arms." Cap says, "At your age, dream on." And that's where we hear a voice from off panel saying. Oh, this is hardly the place for dreaming, Captain. It is instead the land of Nightmare. And that's where we see Nightmare himself and his winged horse. And the horse is all armored up. And as we jump back out to the real world, where Cap's eyes are completely green, and he is broken out of his containment tube, and he is about to smash Dum Dum Dugan into the floor. And Sharon is screaming, Steve, wake up! Wake up! Just another phenomenal issue. I love this issue so much. The opening splash page where Cap and Sharon and the construction worker are buried under the rubble, it's very evocative of, uh, I don't remember which issue number, but that cover from the original Secret Wars where Hulk is holding up the whole mountain. Uh, it just looks fantastic. And then where they fall into the sub-basement. I mean, it looks like kind of you know, like an Indiana Jones falling into a pit kind of thing. Just really, really great artwork on this. Uh, the, the rhino continues to look just incredibly menacing. And I said I was going to double back around to the fight. So there's limit. They're buried. They're in the sub-basement. There's rubble kind of around them on top of them. There's very little oxygen. So Cap is jumping around and flipping, and he's grabbing hold of the rhino's horn, and he's doing some kind of acrobatic thing off of it. And the rhino is starting to get worn out, and you can see sweat dripping off of his face. The rhino says, Why is it so hot in here? Like there's not enough air. You got me using up all the air. <laughs> and then the rhino says, Nice. <gasps> Gasp. Try to wing. <gasps> But I'm still taking you down. You ain't no match for my invulnerable hide. And Cap says, true, and jumps in from off panel and says, too bad for you, it don't wrap around your face. Got your nose! And kicks him, kicks the rhino right in the face and knocks him out. It is so great. I love Mark Wade's sense of humor for Captain America. It's, it's, it's very dry, but it's very cheeky at the same time. I absolutely love it. Um, so we get back to Steve's apartment again, and the the Ramirez family makes a joke about Captain Sharon sure have been in the bedroom a long time. Waka waka waka. Um, we go over to the Benches Mansion, and then U.S. Agent. I hate U.S. Agent, but I want to. Amer U.S. Agent is a great character because he's a character that's designed for you to hate, and I absolutely want to hate him. Um, I'm going to be talking about the John Walker arc of Captain America. In a, in a probably from my Fourth of July special, and I'm gonna kind of you know jump around a bit. I know that's not my usual routine, but I am gonna jump around for that. Um, I, I hate John Walker so much, and I'm supposed to, so they do a really good job. He looks really cool in this issue, though. Um, I think it's smart when they try to take walker's visual aesthetic out from under cap shadow so they do some stuff here they add like a red utility belt to his costume and he has this kind of like green bandolier thing and then a pair of like green strapped goggles on his sitting on his forehead which actually looks kind of cool 
when combined with the red of his gloves in his boots. So it's not a bad look at all. Um, you know, he gets knocked out. And Cap struggling to manually control the wing flap is great. He's like, struggle, must do it. You know, great stuff. Really cool splash page of the of the plane spiraling into the ocean. Because you don't even see the plane. You see this cliff, and you see this little inset panel of Cap finally pulling up the, the wing flap. And it goes, chunk, and locks into place. And you see the smoke trail where it just curls down. And it splashes into the water, and you see bats coming out of the underside of the cave, and the water and the ocean splashing up around the around the reef. It looks really great. Um, so then Cap goes into the dreamscape, the part with the little kids playing army with real soldiers is part of it's funny because it's a it's a kind of a meta commentary nerd fight. Like one of the kids is saying. For the last time, you dweeb, Micronauts rule. And the other kid's going, shut up. Transformers kick Micronaut butt. So it's, you know, just a stereotypical nerd rage. But then, you know, the comment about the kid's like, you can't take my guns. I got my Second Amendment rights. It's like that's, you know, Mark's other meta commentary, which is I love. Mark Wade is just one of my favorite writers of all time. We see Nightmare for the first time in the story. He looks really, really cool. He's got an elf-on-the-shelf quality to him where his arms and his legs are disproportionately long to the length of his torso. It kind of reminds me of, if you guys have read the X-Men 2099 series, which I don't necessarily recommend, there's a character in there called Halloween Jack, which is obviously supposed to be a takeoff on Jack Skellington from Nightmare Before Christmas, but he has kind of the same color scheme and, and body proportion. Uh, but his horse looks really good. It's got the, got this kind of Masters of the Universe armor on his horse, and he's standing on like this rocky outcropping in his dreamscape. And man, the last page—it's technically a splash page because it's one big panel, but it has three little panels inset in it, where you see it kind of like spiraling down. Where you see the one shot up top of Cap's eye, completely green. And then it spirals a little bit more, and you see his face. It pulls back, so you just see his face with the green eyes and him shouting. And it spirals a little more, where he's obviously holding someone up, and he's making angry face. And then it pulls back, and that's where you see him holding Dum Dum Dugan by the throat up in the air. And the body posture on this, it is... This is everything I want in a Captain America action figure. It looks so good. I'm going to put it on Twitter when I post when this image, when this episode goes up. But it's it's this kind of half crouch, half dramatic pose with his right arm that's holding Dugan high up in the air and the other hand is pulled back like maybe he's going to punch him or maybe he's going to body slam him into the ground. But it just, you know, I love this story so much and I love this is this is just another amazing issue. Captain America 11 opens with a close-up of Sharon dodging what looks like a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents who seem to be flying through the air. It looks like they're all caught in some kind of cyclone or something. But then we pull back and we see where its cap is just throwing guys left and right and beating up all kinds of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and his eyes are all green. And he's definitely possessed by Nightmare, where he's under the influence of whatever Nightmare is doing. Sharon tries to stop him, but he slams her to the ground. And he acts like he's going to break her neck or cut his head off with his photon shield, but he stops himself at the last second and then takes off running. 
and Sharon, uh, Sharon realizes he's headed for the aircraft hangar and he's about to take off in a new experimental rocket plane and Sharon tries to get the ground crew to close the hangar bay doors but one of them has been has fallen under nightmares influence and the hangar bay guy says over the intercom let him take the thing how am i going to turn this story into a book deal if i stop him now and sharon's like oh no someone's idea of the american dream is to cruise the talk show circuit which i think is really funny uh especially given the popularity of all the talk shows at the late 90s so sharon gets in a plane of her own and she takes off after him and that's where we jump over to nightmares world and we see Nightmare watching uh, Cap and Sharon through some kind of uh, scrying device of his, and he's watching it like a TV show, making sound effects. And he's we're at his castle, and he's got Cap scrunched up into this little tiny ball floating in the air. And Nightmare monologues his evil plan, where he says that normally he can only uh, gain power from people's dreams when they're asleep. So what he did is he started targeting the sleeping dreams of people who have achieved the American dream. And he began twisting those dreams while they slept so that it began to influence their actions once they woke up again. And that empowered him to begin expanding his influence to start possessing or influencing people while they were daydreaming. And we see these uh, twisted I have achieved the American dream scenarios that I'll double back around to in a minute and we'll also talk about the logistics of Nightmare's plan in a bit but he goes on to say that he wants to expand his influence by uh, he says I plan to use you to nudge Nerth into an even deeper slumber a time of endless sleep born by the perpetual night of nuclear winter Back in the real world, Steve and Sharon are having a dogfight in the air, and Cap shoots up Sharon's plane real bad, and she's about to go down, so she fires off some missiles that were intended to just take out the wing of Steve's plane, and then hits her own ejector seat, but the missile targets Steve's engine and blows up his plane too, so both uh, Sharon and Nightmare and Steve's consciousness think that Steve has been killed for a second but then in what would be probably one of the most iconic images of Captain America if it weren't for the green eyes and maniacal face that he's making uh, Cap attacks her from above with his own chute partially open he severs the lines of her chute but then grabs her around the waist with his legs takes off his own chute forces it on her makes her you know continues to drift down slowly while he dives down into the lake below. In Nightmare's realm, Cap breaks out of his little spherical prison that Nightmare's put him in, but he's not able to physically touch Nightmare. He tries to punch him, but his hand goes right through Nightmare's body. Um, back in the real world, uh, Cap shows up at NORAD, and he uses his I I Avenger's ID to get into the base, but he acts like a jerk and takes the soldier's gun. And he stomps in there like he owns the place. But then Sharon sneaks in behind him, and she shoots the rifle out of his hand. And he's like, well, dude, you know, she says, you know, stop or I'm going to have to shoot you. And he's like, fine, shoot me. And he starts stalking toward her, and she shoots him in the leg, uh, which 
the real Steve feels a nightmares world. Steve's body gets up and keeps coming toward her. She shoots him in the shoulder, which Steve feels yet again. Uh, he's like, well, I guess you're just going to have to kill me then because I'm going to keep coming. So she drops the gun and she tries to kick him. And But that's when we jump straight to Nightmare's World and we see that Sharon is now in Nightmare's World too because her reluctance to kill Steve Rogers shows that she too now believes in the American dream. The art in this one again is gorgeous. Um, the story gets a little muddled at some points in this one, uh, like when Nightmare is explaining his plan. Um, I'm going to read it to you. He says, I have no command over that particular dream, or for that matter, over any of the dreams mortals dream when they are awake. Dreams of lust, dreams of worship, dreams of fame and power. However, thanks to you, and he's talking about a speech that Cap gave at the end of the thing with the scrolls. However, thanks to you, it occurs to me that they might yet be within my grasp. As you surmise, I slowly began targeting those who have achieved the idea of the American dream, using my psychic influence to twist it inside their sleeping minds, making it something ugly and tawdry, selfish, and grotesque, turning it into a nightmare from which they could not awaken. Each of my victims empowered me empathically, allowing me to snare further prey, and now, now their aggregate madness sweeps your, pro, your nation as in epidemic proportions, making me stronger with each passing moment. So it doesn't really make any sense how, I, I guess, the, the mechanics of it in terms of there's, you know, in terms of magic stuff is that he messes with their dreams while they're sleeping and that ramps him up enough to mess with their dreams while they're awake. I don't know. I mean, because he, he gets done saying, I can't, I can't affect people's dreams while they're awake. But then he says, I mess with their dreams while they're sleeping enough that I can mess with people's dreams while they're awake. So it's just one of those things where you just have to say because comics and let it go. Um, the, sh the shot of what people's twisted American dreams are is interesting. Um, you see a very large gentleman uh, receiving uh, affection from three scantily clad ladies. Um, you see a rock star. Um, holding tiny little people in his hands um, with this malicious grin on his face. And then you see this dad, uh, like patriarchy dad, and he's got like his wife and his kids on a leash, which is kind of disturbing. Um, there's one shot where there's a lady standing in front of the presidential podium, and she just kind of looks wide-eyed and glassy. So I don't know if that's implying that, at least for the sake of this story, a, the Marvel Universe has a lady president, which would be pretty cool. Um, but it's just, I don't understand how this is a twisted version of her dream, because it looks like she's actually achieved what she wanted. Issue 12 is the double-sized climax of the American Nightmare arc. And it opens with Sharon reliving her nightmares of the things that she had to do to survive while she was lost undercover for S.H.I.E.L.D. with some unsettling implications of things that happened to her while she was imprisoned. Cap snaps her out of it, um, but uh, Nightmare reiterates his plan to use Cap and now Sharon to set off a nuclear holocaust, which will blanket the world in darkness, which in Nightmare's brand of logic 
indicates that people will sleep more and have more nightmares. In the real world, we see the possessed bodies of Cap and Sharon fighting their way through army guys to reach the launch chamber for the nuclear missiles. And uh, possessed Cap tries to do a retinal scan. Actual physical changes to the possessed person's eyes. It doesn't read him. Um, in the dream world, we see Cap trying to wake up people that are under Nightmare's influence, including Dum Dum Dugan. Um, and then Cap and Sharon are attacked by flying creatures that I think are supposed to be homages to the Night Gaunts from the Cthulhu Mythos stories by H.P. Lovecraft, which is pretty cool. In the real world, Possessed Cap and Possessed Sharon break into the launch chamber and they try to convince the technicians who are working the station to launch the missiles, uh, even though the guys are very reluctant. Back in Nightmare's world, uh, the Night Gaunts drop Cap off at Nightmare's feet, only we see that this time Cap is able to make contact with Nightmare, and he punches Nightmare right in the face, which is awesome, and Cap says, surprise, you picked the wrong dream and the wrong man to mess with Nightmare, because I'm not in my element. It took me a while, but I finally figured something out. If you're drawing psychic power from the American dream, then I, in this weird realm where dreams are reality, as the personification of that dream, I can do the same. And then he smacks Nightmare in the jaw and sends him flying. And Sharon and a lot of the dreamers are being attacked by Nightmare creatures. And Cap keeps beating up Nightmare, but then more Nightmare creatures show up and attack Cap and hold him down. Um, and in the real world, we see where Cap and Sharon are now physically uh, threatening the nuclear technicians with violence. And they, they beat them up, and they said, fine, we'll launch the missiles ourselves. But then we Nightmare looks out his window of his castle, and he sees an army of dreamers are storming the castle because Sharon has inspired them with a speech of her own because she now believes in the American dream. And she's convinced them all to fight back. But and Nightmare grows to giant size, but using his newly realized ability to control his own dream, Cap again beats the stuffing out of Nightmare, which is just three of my favorite panels of all. Actually, no, it's like two pages of Cap just beating the poop out of Nightmare. And he holds him by the ankle and he dangles him outside the window. And he pretty much says, you know, you've got all these rioting dreamers down below. And he says, you know, they've all kind of figured out the same thing I have. So if you don't let us go now, I'm going to drop you into this crowd of people that's going to tear you apart. So uh, Cap and Sharon and all the rest of the dreamers, they're free. And Cap and Sharon go back into their bodies. But they realize that they've already activated the missiles. The launch activated countdown, 1 minute 13 seconds. So Cap and Sharon, Cap fights his way back out of the chamber, back through the army guys to try to reach the missiles. And Sharon's trying to hack the, the, the launch computer, but the army guys show up and make her stand down. And so Cap gets to the actual launch bay. He forces a way inside the, I don't know the technical term for it, the launch tube where the missile is. And he is trying to force the uh, the hangar closed so the missile can't launch but that but, uh, let's see 
If I can seal the titanium doors, the missile will still launch, but it'll cripple itself and self-abort when it crashes through. So he gets it to close, but the missile's still going to take off. So Cap jumps down onto the missile. He's kind of makes a, a hole in it with the with his shield and he slides down the side of the side of this giant missile uh, runs to the bottom and then uh, shields himself from the missile blast and I don't know how well exactly that would work because that's probably like a bajillion degrees in there but uh, he managed to survive the missile launches to the top of the silo it starts to break apart uh, i've got a bunch of debris coming down on him and he smashes his way out just in time and that's when all the army guys surround him and uh you know they take him into custody but dum-dum says you know nope I, I know what was going on he he wasn't in control of himself and everything is okay now um and Cap and Sharon, they're, they're walking out, and uh, they're having a little bit of banter. And Cap says, Nightmare got you, right? He says, he couldn't have got you if you were the total cynic you complained to be. And Sharon says, get real. I was playing the part. It was a trick to get into his realm. And then they have a little, okay, really? Uh-huh. I mean it, Rogers. Trick. Got it. <laughs> so, you know, once again, Sharon is playing up the fact that she doesn't care about uh, Steve as much as she really does but by now in the book it is very obvious that she is in love with our boy Steve all over again so a really satisfying end to this arc um, like I said by the time I was about 10 Nightmare was kind of you know the what I saw as the personification of the idea of being afraid of things and as someone who has struggled with anxiety a lot of my life that is an important thing and so to watch my favorite superhero who represents the idea of standing up to your fears just beating the snot out of the personification of fear to me that is just a very really gratifying Again, the art in this is just phenomenal, which I never thought I would say because for a lot of his career, I don't care for a lot of Andy Kubert's work, but his work in this arc with this inker is just amazing. And I love how Kubert and Wade always have Cap do stuff that's just a little more than possible. I know Cap is supposed to be the pinnacle of what a human can do, and it gets a little bonkers later on, which I will eventually get to in Man Out of Time. But, you know, like I said, he he had no way out of the missile silo except to be directly under the missile. And he just barely shields himself with this photonic shield. And even though the fire is not directly touching him, it's got to be, like I said, you know, probably a thousand degrees in that little chamber, which would be the heat itself would be enough to kill a person. But uh, Mark Wade's Steve Rogers is definitely superhuman. Um, and it's just just a really great arc. If you haven't read this, I strongly recommend you go check it out. It's so much fun. Again, it's one of my probably top five favorite Captain America stories. Thank you guys so much for listening to my shenanigans. 
Um, I had a lot of fun revisiting these issues. Uh, again, thanks to Herman for hooking me up with that copy of Ghost Rider. Um, I plan to do one of these specials about every three or four months. I have an Arctic Adventure special that I plan to put out on December 21st. I have an April Foolishness special planned for the spring and, of course, a 4th of July special for the summer. I'll be back in about a week or two with the next regular episode of the show uh, where we'll be continuing um, Mike Zek's artistic run. And I don't remember who the writer is, but I know it's got something to do with Cap fighting Dr. Octopus, which is pretty cool. If you guys enjoy my brand of vocal meanderings, uh, be on the lookout for the new episode of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, where I do a guest spot on there. And that should be, uh, this is, let's see, I'm finishing this up on October 28th. So you guys should be hearing this tomorrow on the 29th. And I think... Um, Al's new episode is going to drop right around the same time, so you'll get a double dose of Grant all in one, uh, and of course Al in all his awesomeness as well. Um, obviously you guys know how to find the show if you're listening to it, but if you're looking for a different way to listen to it, um, we're on all the major podcast players, uh, Spotify especially since it I think now owns Anchor, but also Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and all that good stuff. If you Google Sentinel of Liberty podcast, it's pretty much the whole first page of results. If you Google Captain America podcast, it's pretty much the same thing. So word of mouth is getting around. Uh, thank you guys so much for that. Uh, thank you for any five-star reviews that you guys may drop on your podcast player of choice. Um, I've also changed the username for the Twitter account. It's what would underscore cap do on Twitter. Um, so I think I made everybody aware of that a few days ago, but if you see strangeness popping up with that name, that's still me. Don't worry. It's not some weirdo who's, who's cloned my account. Fear not. But, um, again, thank you guys so much. Uh, we'll be back in just a few days and until then sleep tight. <laughs>